We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Forbidden Zone on March 21st, 1980. It was written by Richard Elfman, Matthew Bright, Martin Nicholson, and Nicholas James. Directed by Richard Elfman and released by the Samuel Goldman Company. Uh, Some of our listeners that are more familiar with this film might argue, as Elfman has in several interviews, that the movie was actually released in 1982. In fact, after some initial research pointed me to that conclusion, I submitted the correction to IMDb, which now lists the film as a 1982 release. However, while it may be true that it didn't take its final form until 82, or arguably 2008, the year it was colorized, which was always Elfman's intent, The movie actually premiered in August of 1979 and first screened publicly in some near-complete form in the spring of 1980, which is corroborated by contemporaneous accounts collected at virtualvenice.info, which accurately described most of the plot in a review published circa March of 1980. The film was also a regular Friday night midnight movie at the New Beverly Cinema that summer. Elfman raised the money to create this film by flipping houses, Oh, yeah. So he was in real estate of some sort, and, and he sunk his own money into this. But yeah. at some point, they ran out of money for the film, and he sold his house in order yes. to finish financing the film. Exactly. This film marks the first appearance of the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, later shortened to just Oingo Boingo. This is one of, so this is one of those movies that I thought would be good for people to watch before they listen to. It's, That's true. It's not full of spoilers or anything like that, but I think that it's... Something that that's probably better experienced than described. Yeah, I think it's going to be a hard one to describe, and it's going to be one that I think you might want to just just watch before you uh, before you listen. Saying that though, go into it with an open mind. Yes, because it's going to it's going to have some stuff that might you might immediately want to turn it off. Yes, <laughs> that's probably true. Um, and, and, and in that effort, like, uh, I, I wanted us to try to come up with some sort of like description of the film. So it's like, if you had to describe this to a friend who hasn't seen this film, how would you describe it? Uh, Cause I was thinking, I, I find this film very difficult to, to describe to people, but, and, and I kind of want to warn them about this film because I, I love this film. I, you know, I've, yeah. I've watched it many times and I love this film, but I think that people need to, um, go into it with certain expectations of, of what kind of movie it is. So I'm like, I wanted I wanted us to kind of come up with our own taglines to describe it. Well, uh, m- do you want to hear my pitch? Yeah, I want, I want to hear yours. My initial pitch was Alice in Wonderland meets Caligula. I like that. See, it's totally different than mine. Okay. Yeah. Did you come up with one, Richard? Uh, I have, if the Rocky Horror Picture Show ate the Fleischer Brothers and then vomited up a very boring and uninteresting and stupid mess of a movie. Oh, <laughs> ouch. Okay, Richard's not on the same page as me on this one. Uh, well, I, I have this as uh, John Waters directs Rocky Horror Picture Show as a student film. Okay. <laughs> I think those are all accurate, except for Richard's. Yeah, this was... Uh, this was definitely a very arduous watch and not my cup of tea throughout. It's wonderful, though. Uh <laughs> We should we get into the uh, plot? But an, another quick, I think, uh, w- word of warning on this film. I think there is there is quite a lot of uh, what could be perceived as uh, racism, anti semitism, <laughs> and sexism. In this it's film. clearly perceived? satire. I'm just saying it's satire. It's surreal. It's a surrealist film. It's not. Oh, that makes it okay. <laughs> We're going to have some disagreements <laughs> okay. in the next four hours. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's move through the plot now, shall we? Yeah. Uh, we open with Huckleberry P. Jones, which is uh, just a racist caricature of a, a black pimp and drug dealer who was hiding heroin in the basement right. of a home It's in not Venice. just a black pimp. It's 
It's clearly somebody in blackface. Like this is this is. Do we actually see him? Oh yeah, we see him yeah. running. Okay. In, in it's and like out the, the first house. thing like, that we totally see. I, I remember the animated face, face running out of the house. No, no, we see him beforehand okay. going into the house as well. He's hiding heroin in a basement of a Venice flop house uh, when he fell through a portal into the sixth dimension, but escaped and ran away from the house. And then uh, a family moves into the home after he leaves. We start with them sitting around a breakfast table. It's a father, a mother, sister and a brother, and a grandfather. And I think we should sort of describe the the sets of this movie. They're... It's very cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's 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 completely like homemade, you know, like grade school play type level of sets where they're like drawn on sheets of paper and, you know, just nothing in this movie is like real is a real thing like everything seemed to be made out of paper and cardboard and bits of stuff around the house so like in every scene that you need something they never used the real version of that they used you know like a a craft project version of whatever those things are and a lot of it is like forced perspective so like over Frenchie, which is the sister's shoulder you see like this weird like trapezoid shape of like the floor yeah which she goes and dances in the corner. It's supposed to look like her dancing in an open, expansive floor, but it's clearly just drawn onto the background. And and the the costuming and the um, the makeup in this movie is is right on par with yes the sets that you're the, doing. Everything is like super weird, over the top, uh, excessive. Like all the costumes look like they were, you know, gathered together from your grandma's closet. Yeah, but for some reason. The brother at the table is clearly like a gray-haired older man, but he's wearing like a propeller hat to look like a child. Yeah, he's and wearing then like the, a Cub Scout outfit. Yeah, and the person playing the grandfather has like just dark black hair and a long black beard. And the roles obviously would have made much more sense the other way, but one of them is a quote-unquote actor and the other one is definitely not an actor. But uh, Frenchie uh, is the sister and she says that they have to leave for school soon. And Flash mentions that the principal said, If anybody's going to be late, they're going to be punished. Mm. <laughs> like they're all just making weird, like, guttural sounds and random, like, accentuated weirdness. Flash says that uh, Squeeze It Henderson's transvestite brother was playing near the portal and went through and never came out. The portal that's in the basement of this house that they're in, in right in now. their house. <laughs> Frenchie wonders aloud what might be beyond the doors. And her father is like pantomiming like he's going to punch her. And he's like, don't you talk about that door downstairs. you got to stay away from that. It's really dangerous. And I'm barely exaggerating the way he talks here. You, you don't ever. You don't ever. You, you don't ever. You don't ever. You don't. And he goes right into a song about how she needs to stay away from the doors. And uh, the, the song sort of slips into a Cab Calloway recording of a Shelton Brooks song called Some of These Days. It, it doesn't really have anything to do with the doors at that point. It's just about how you're going to miss me if you go through the doors and you disappear. And then we get a quick uh, John Mudo animation of dice rolling through the shot. And we were transitioned into the underworld. Which is, first we get a solo from the Kipper Kids, which are these two guys, they're bald, they're completely naked wearing jock straps, and they're just making guttural sounds and fart noises, which is like their whole shtick. I, I really enjoy the fact that for their makeup, they, they're they bald and, and they've, they've shaved, but they have put dots on, on their yeah. face where the beard would be, so like it looks like a cartoon version of a beard, yeah. which the entire room is filled with cartoon, like, well, and, and throughout the movie, there's cartoon versions of these guys throughout the sets with that the have beards. the dotted beards that, that are really funny. Yeah. Insanely, this is John Mudo's only animation credit on IMDb, uh, but he does have a bunch of visual effects credits, including Rotowork later this year on Battle Beyond the Stars. Mm-hmm. Well, he was uh, a production designer for the most part. Right. So he has done production design on such movies as Home Alone, right. Flowers in the Attic, yeah. Hearts and Souls. It's, a, it's an eclectic mix, those, those three. He also did Species. Did he? <laughs> which, yeah, with those other three. It's like none of those... Four movies it's like a lot of those movies feature. involve death. 
Yeah. I, 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 I liked the animation style, though. It was very... Oh, it was uh, great. It's very reminiscent of, like, a Terry Gilliam style. It actually reminded me of Cuphead, the the actual, like, hand-drawn animation stuff. Well, it definitely... Dice. Yeah, it has well, that Fleischer look of, yeah. of some of it, but yeah. it's um it's got... It's the Terry Gilliam style where it's, like, cut-out animation... Right. Uh, replacement animation over top of like airbrushed backgrounds and a lot of roto uh we get a quick dance number in a construction paper cave from bust rod who is a paper mache headed frogman in a tuxedo seems he, to be like the right hand of the, the yeah. king and queen he's basically of the, the white dimension. rabbit here yeah um and uh he runs through the cave into a room where uh a queen is reveling in the torture of dozens of partially and completely naked women. Then the topless princess runs through the shot, whipping basically a chain gang of screaming and similarly topless women past the doorway. And we zoom in through the door on Hervé Villachez playing a trumpet at the end of like a forced perspective long <laughs> dining table. Flash ties up Gramps so they can go to school because apparently he has to be like confined. They never really explain that. <laughs> yeah, he seems like mentally impaired somehow. Mom sings for a moment before dad just knocks her unconscious because he doesn't want to hear the song. At school, kids are approaching the door speaking in pig Latin as they arrive. Um, and I think two of these girls were actually tenants of Richard Elfman's that he was like, hey, do you guys want to be in a movie? And so those are the two that are, I think, speaking pig Latin as they walk into the classroom. Um, the uh, Another two girls standing outside find their classmate Squeezit Henderson hiding in a trash can and they uh, start to mock him. One of them, the I just love the line delivery of almost everything in this movie, but she says, Ew, Squeezit Henderson! Will you get a lot of that, Jake, will ya? <laughs> There's so many lines like that that, I, that are just burned in my memory because I've seen this movie so many times. Flash walks up and spits immediately into Squeezit's face while he's in the trash can. And the whole time he's in the trash can, he's kind of like shivering and doing this weird like chicken yeah, the, motion the chicken arms yeah he's got chicken wings and he's just kind of, i mean he does it throughout the entire movie yeah he's bouncing and shaking in there they ask him about his sister and he says he thinks he might be able to astrally project to her because last night he was being punished so intensely by his mom that he had a vision from her perspective from his sister's perspective right, so he saw he saw what she was seeing in the sixth dimension yeah did you ever see that movie martyrs Murders? Martyrs. Murders. Murders. No luck catching them killers then. <laughs> I have not seen Martyrs. We, we watched it with Matt one time. It's super, super dark. It's like, but it's literally, they're, they're trying to like get a connection to God by torturing people as brutally as possible. Makes sense. And so it reminded me of that, that he's saying that he was literally like pushed to the peak of pain so that he could connect to his twin sister. In the vision, she's wearing Mickey Mouse ears and playing an instrument for the king and queen at a dinner. Above the dinner table, a very tall man is holding a lit candle in each hand and foot and is balancing by a strap around his waist. Renee is adding lyrics. The The twin sister is adding lyrics to the song she's playing by just referencing masturbation and <laughs> pissing everybody off. Then the frog turns and cuts off her ear and then eats it. They, the king and queen recover from being upset about the song fairly quickly and she says it, it seems like they're having like an anniversary dinner for having been married for a thousand years but that they're still completely in love and they kiss Hervé Villachez and Susan Tyrell were actually a couple prior to this movie yeah they had broken up before this movie started yeah so. um, that's the end of the vision that he has of his sister um, and Flash just puts the lid back on the trash can over Squeezit's face and everyone heads into class, and then a, like an extra nerdy kid comes on and is like, "Come on, squeeze it! We're gonna be late for class." Inside the class is a mess. One kid is holding another kid in the air by his neck, but there's very clearly ropes holding him up, and they're not trying to hide it at all. But also, just just to be clear, none of these kids are actually kids. Right. These are all played by full-grown adults yes. that um, are 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 dressed, you know very wacky you know everything from you know having rubber bands hold their noses up you know like to in full three-piece suits with fedoras and... right yeah f yeah full pimp outfits too you know yeah. like it just it, it runs the gamut of uh, unusual costumes on these children that are children supposed to be not in class. children <laughs> flash is sitting at his desk injecting himself with some kind of a drug 
Um, Squeezit walks in, and he's in his underwear, still shaking like a chicken. The teacher, which is also the chandelier from the earlier scene, uh, fires an automatic weapon into the ceiling and invites Squeezit to perform the Pledge of Allegiance for everyone. But he does such a terrible job, and it's just like weird chicken noises that everyone starts laughing at him, and he's crying so hard that water is shooting out of his face, (laughs) like pouring out of his hands. Frenchie sings a song about her adventures abroad. Like, most of the songs in this film are just stolen music. <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's all like, stock music. So, the, yeah, the song, well, it's not stock music. Like, the song that Frenchie sings is a, a Josephine Baker song. Right. And uh, so it turns out that Richard Elton didn't, like, clear any of these song rights. Yeah. <laughs> he just used the music, and that became pretty problematic later when he had to go back and, and actually get the rights to all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, th- that's why he had to sell the house eventually, right? Because it came to that point. And that, I think that's and, why he had to sell the rights to the film. I think he, he couldn't oh, okay. get it distributed because all of the music rights, and he had to basically, in order to find it, he had to sell away the rights, and he only got it back relatively recently. I think the uh, John Mudo's animation was actually the part that was more expensive than he thought during the production that caused him to have to sell the house. Because there's no other expensive part of the movie other than the rights and the animation. Yeah. But the animation is what you need before you can finish it. Yeah. But during the song, a fight breaks out in the class between a few of the gambling students in the back. And one of them is shot. And <laughs> he says to the teacher, Well, the man was cheating. So I just had to do away with him and that's all there was to it. And uh, then him and the teacher exchange gunfire after she threatens to send him to the principal's office uh frenchie just leaves immediately and goes home and she's like oh i think i'm gonna have a peek behind that door and she slips on a roller skate and slides into the sixth dimension which is a really cool animation piece yeah so like when you when you get down into the basement and and she slides through this doorway there's um you know once again a a paper cutout version of like this monster's mouth that is, you know, swallowing you whole. Uh, and then you go through this uh, animated digestive track, I guess, yeah. with with all sorts of tortures along the way. You recognize it from Pepto-Bismol commercials. <laughs> yeah, so she go, you know, she they all uh, they all enter the the sixth dimension through the digestive system of this monster and get uh, pooped out the, the yeah. back end. She she falls out of a, an illustrated squatting butt into the sixth dimension. She hears music from the next room over and well, follows it. Well, this is where we have kind of like a Jack Skellington holiday town kind of room of doors. Sure, yeah. Where every door seems to take you to a different aspect of the sixth dimension. Yeah, I saw like shades of every future Danny Elfman movie like (laughs) moving forward in this little piece here. But she follows it into this boxing ring room where the Kipper brothers are uh, singing in their weird Kipper brother language to Bim Bam Boom which is a song by Nino Morales and Johnny Camacho and being performed here by Miguelito Valdez. Uh, the actor here is just a friend of Richard Elfman's from childhood who was too shy to even lip sync on set. So they had to superimpose Matthew Bright's mouth over his mouth, squeeze its mouth over Which his mouth. I am just so glad that that happened because I love this moment. I think we should put a picture of it up on the Instagram. Absolutely. Because the the superimposed mouth over top of it, of, of this very still looking kind of shocked, you know, kid that it's just, it's hilarious. It's amazing. It's much better than it would have been if he actually had done his own singing. <laughs> yeah. And you can tell uh, if you watch the kippers in the background that they're actually rocking the shot back and yeah. forth over like one second of footage where the guy was holding still enough that they could do this. But because they have this this surreal effect that he does like weird little asides and sticks his tongue out between parts of the song and it just looks that much weirder when the rest of the face isn't moving at all. But it's, it's a really funny effect. And uh, Frenchie starts dancing to the song because she's enjoying it so much. And Bustrod, the paper mache frog character, starts dancing with her. But then the princess arrives and arrests Frenchie because she's an intruder. And after everyone leaves the room, the Kipper kids just explode <laughs> in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the boxing ring. Um, so I I want to note here that I think that this is influenced by the fact that apparently Richard Elfman was an amateur boxer. Oh, interesting! I didn't. know Yeah. That. So I. I didn't know that either, but I guess that's why 
we this whole scene takes place in a boxing ring. And he probably had those gloves. Yeah. <laughs> it's just stuff that he had. <laughs> yeah. The king and queen are waiting on a stage in which is kind of the throne room for the movie. Uh, it's just like a stage covered in abstract dice that have like too many dots on one side or they're all like smushed up into one corner. They're very interesting looking uh, set design. Uh, the king just immediately starts reciting poems to Frenchie because he just can't help himself. Um, he's unable to hide his attraction to her. And he tells the guards to take her to cell 63, which an intertitle pops up and explains that that's where he sends all of his favorite concubines. So we follow uh, Frenchie to cell 63, which is where Renee is also. Right, I was going to say all his favorite concubines. As we enter that room, there's, you know, a lot of... Unattractive yeah. women in this room. Yeah, so of course, it, Frenchie is like must be the prize uh, of, of all his collected women here. Yeah, Renee's in there, and also the person who was just singing "Bim Bam Boom" is in there. <laughs> and uh, the king is like peeking through a window, taking photographs of her. And Renee's like, "Oh, you're so lucky. The king really likes you." Lucky, lucky, lucky. The boss really noticed you. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. And then he says, The queen is a very important person. She hurts me a lot, but I respect her. Susan Tyrell, as the queen, sings an amazing song called Witch's Egg about how... Ooh, she helped write this song. Yeah, she co-wrote it with George Michalski, and she performs it herself here. But it's basically a song about how her father told her that she needed to find a man, and she couldn't find one. And so she's like, I'll try and find a wife. And she couldn't find a wife. And she decided she was just going to go on her own and make a life for herself. There's really incredible roto work here where in the middle of a shot, her head separates from her body and goes floating through space. But the whole time she's singing, her lips stay in sync with the music, but it's really tightly cut out around her head. And uh, at the end of the shot, which is presumably all the same shot, like from the production side, it reconnects to her head to finish this scene. Um, on the stage the last lyric of the song always cracks me up later the the king is watching through a telescope as Frenchie, actually Marie Pascal Elfman this time, she's not lip syncing, she's actually singing a song called Pluer, which was written by Jerome Savory. But the queen catches him watching her, and uh, they have a big fight in the dining hall. And he says that he's attracted to her because she's French, and he's French. And that and means the that they're the master race. <laughs> yeah, they're like basically the master race, and they're both direct descendants of God. And a fight breaks out, and the two of them. They end up making up, but later uh, the king and queen are sleeping on this table under like a little raggedy hand blanket. Oh, yeah. Like this has clearly got to be something just like off of like Richard Elfman's childhood bed. Like, yeah. It's just. <laughs> but while, while they're laying there, the king is asleep and she's laying there with him and he says, oh, harder, harder, Frenchie. And she makes this shocked face like, oh, my gosh, even though I already caught you being attracted to this prisoner. I'm shocked to find out that you're attracted to her. The king tries to impress Frenchie later by showing him a painting that he's been doing. And when we get the reverse angle, it's like this. Notorious a, Betty Page. Yeah, it's a Betty yeah. Page painting. <laughs> it's a painting of a, of a famous Betty Page photograph. But it was an actual painting that was stolen shortly after the film was finished. But uh, he obviously didn't paint this. Although he is a painter. he didn't. He, this isn't what he was painting there. He's using a dry brush on an empty easel. The king and Frenchie immediately have sex on the same table where he just had sex with the queen. Back in school, the teacher is singing the kids uh, the ABC song, which according to IMDb trivia is a mutated version of Swinging the Alphabet, which is a classic number from the Three Stooges yeah. short. Uh, violent is the word for curly. Yeah, that, that, that song I know very well. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I didn't know this one. Yeah. Well, that's, so I looked it up and I was going to play it for you guys if you hadn't heard it because I'm just like, this song is great. Yeah. I love this song. B-A-Bay, B-E-B, B-I-Bicky-Bye, B-O-Bo, Bicky-Bye-Bo, B-U-Boo, Bicky-Bye-Bo-Boo. 
Get the idea, girls? Now we'll all join together on the letter D. How far into the alphabet do they go in that? Uh, there's another minute and a half here. I didn't listen to the whole thing. Well, I just wondered if they got to G or if he was just extrapolating. Well, apparently when they get to F, they they do a reverse where you think they're going to say a bad word, but they don't. Oh, in which, that? Yeah, which is like seems like pretty risque. Yeah, which, but, in but this, that's the joke of it. And that's the joke of it. And but in this version... They just the, say it. They just <laughs> Fuck you. And then the next, because after F would be G, and if you're following the rhyme scheme, it's like G is gay, 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 gay guy, kick and go, goo, 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 gay guy. The most embarrassing line that you could be singing, but Squeeze It is the only person singing it. Everyone's just laughing at him while he's trying to sing it. Flash, the teacher tells all the kids to put a bag over their head and read a book. And while they still have bags over their heads, Flash turns to squeeze it and says, I'm going to go save Frenchie. If you want help, I'm going to have to bring Gramps. And he doesn't help. And he's like, how are you even going to get out of class? And then he just jumps through the window in the classroom. Which is, again, once again, a paper window yeah. that he just jumps through. That is obviously pre-cut into four pieces so that it just breaks into four like clean cut edges. Flashing Gramps head into the sixth dimension, fall out of that same animated but onto poop pillows which which i think you told me when we watched it you're like oh i didn't realize those were supposed to be poop until we got to the colorized version because the original version of this was black and white with the, yeah. the intention that he was always going to go back and colorize it but they didn't have the the funds to do that until relatively recently i think it right. was 2014 or something that they no colored. it was 2008 oh it's 2008 that oh yeah we, right right we, we went, went to the premiere we went we did go to the premiere we went to the egyptian theater was it at the egyptian or the new art i was trying to remember it was at the egyptian okay. and and susan tyrell was there richard elfman was there and i don't know that any i don't know if anybody else was there yeah but uh but it was great and so we finally saw the colorized version and you're like oh those those That's pillows poop. are supposed to be poop i just thought out. they were pillows to protect the actors but it turns out <laughs> that they're actually supposed to look like turds that fell out of this butt but uh the first thing that happens when they roll into that room with all the doors is Herman Bernstein is rolled out on this platform, and well, this is actually Richard Elfman's grandfather. Yeah, I mean he's not he's not credited in the movie as such. He was credited as Hyman Diamond uh, because they no Hyman Diamond is the name of the fake name of the actor playing Gramps in the opening credits. But Herman Bernstein is what it says on the little banner oh. over the thing that they rolled out. Oh, okay, I was confused by that then because I thought they said that they didn't credit the grandpa because they didn't know that he'd want to have cre- been credited in the no, movie. No, that that that's for the accountant who plays Gramps in the movie. Oh, okay, I was confused about which grandpa we were talking about. Because yeah, one about. of them is his actual grandfather, <laughs> and one of them is the character Gramps. But yeah, so Herman Bernstein is rolled out, and he says that he'll exchange their money for local currency, and he gives them their local currency, and they they tell him their situation that Frenchie was came through this portal and was kidnapped and that they are here to help her escape and he says that he will sell them a plan for three shekels and then he whispers the plan in their ear it's not clear whether they're following this plan for the rest of the movie right um because it doesn't seem like anything they do is based on like having a, a weirdly specific knowledge of this underworld but flashing gramps are immediately distracted by some prisoners um, specifically one naked prisoner with a bag over her head and just start humping her from behind and are immediately arrested and brought to the queen. Flash and Grandpa are dropped into the royal septic tank. Um, and the queen prepares to torture Frenchie to death uh, because uh, she's stealing her lover. So she leaves the princess to take over the torture after she threatens Frenchie with electrocution. So the torture device is basically like an electric probe. Um, <laughs> Which looks like... Uh... What was it? A, a, like a little balloon attached yeah, it's, to the it's end just of a, a balloon like a, on a stick. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, it ha- Mudo had drawn like electric lines. Oh yeah, on it, it has like glowing animated lines so that it looks like electricity. But they keep turning it up until the fuse blows, and so that's where it, when the electricity goes away, you can tell it's just a pink balloon on a stick. 
flashing gramps escape the septic tank and in the ensuing explosion end up falling into the ex-queen's prison cell where she's like been hidden away from everyone um well gramps lands next to this ape guard character and flash falls into the ex-queen's cell and immediately just starts humping the ex-queen while she explains who she is and tells her whole backstory I like there was a story that they were um, like just, uh, you know, people would just sleep on the sets of uh, of the film as they were shooting it because, you know, nobody. Sure. You know, they were working long hours and nobody had any money and they just slept in extra gorilla suits to keep warm. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. It, it, this whole movie could have been shot in a garage except for a couple key like stage scenes. But yeah. So uh, Flash is humping her while she explains that. She's the former queen and that she's been the king sent her down here because he didn't have the heart to kill her. And, uh, but that she's been kept secret from the current queen. She tried to write a story about it, but she can't write stories here because everything's so crazy and loud and she can't concentrate. Um, and then he tells her that, uh, they can fly away, uh, by him just flicking the propeller on his hat and they fly up out of her cage and land next to Gramps who, started a fight with this gorilla guard character and beat his face to a pulp. You can clearly see him like just hammering on some like ground beef that was where the head was supposed to be. Way, way after he's dead. He's just still punching it until the the meat inside of it is flat. The ex-queen doesn't thank them at all for helping her escape, even though possibly she's been in there for a thousand years, which is how long the, the king and new queen have been married. And she just leaves and says... That she has to change a Tampax. <laughs> and they're just like, okay, whatever. Anyway, we're, we're doing our thing. Pa, in the real world, lip syncs to the Boulevard Stompers singing Eddie Maxwell and Julie Stein's Pico and Sepulveda song. which is uh, a favorite of ours that we sing pretty regularly but uh it turns out was not original to this movie the premise of the song seems to be that the la brea tar pits are on pico and sepulveda which they are not <laughs> uh the la brea tar pits are on like wilshire just east of fairfax yeah near lagma yeah over in the museum district but uh i looked up where pico and sepulveda is with like the little the little dude where you drop them on the intersection yeah. there's nothing interesting there at all there's a la salsa there so if anyone's nice. interested i don't know one. that it was there in 1980 but you know it's there right now <laughs> it's a, you, you take the exit on the 405 and you get off at sawtell there you and go. You go you go left to olympic and right to pico is this to get to pico and sepulveda <laughs> yeah did you go there for this podcast specifically i'm, I'm there all the time <laughs> um but, it's my corner. Uh, it, it seems uh, basically as the song is playing, uh, we're seeing road signs from all over Los Angeles. And it's just, you know, them singing the names of streets very musically and uh, people driving in cardboard cars down streets. <laughs> and then a team of employees walking up to the La Brea Tar Pit factory, which just makes tar like it's getting exported from the La Brea Tar Pits. Pits. I don't know. Yeah, but the sign <laughs> out front says unclear that, what they make. <laughs> right. But the the sign outside says the La Brea Tar Pits factory. So, I don't think they're making pits, <laughs> but they're they seem to be just filling barrels with the tar from the tar pits. It it bas- it looks like the inventing room from Willy Wonka. There's a bunch of like uh containers are just burping up smoke into the sky and like dust is falling down and uh there's signs everywhere that say not to smoke but as soon as they go on break everyone pulls out a cigarette and uh when break is over uh pa throws his cigarette into one of the barrels of tar and the entire tar pit explodes and he's launched into space in this cool animated piece and then when he's falling back to his house the mother of the family is in bed with a man in blackface which is the original guy from that owned the house the guy that, that was from earlier. the first scene yeah. yeah um and he says oh by the way honey when 
splendid, mentally retarded Swedish husband of yours coming home anyhow. Which is like one of my favorite lines from the movie. Because it's like, we haven't been given any indication that he's mentally retarded other than just now when he threw a cigarette into a <laughs> barrel of tar. But uh, he crashes through the ceiling, but nobody gets caught because he also crashes through the floor and immediately into the sixth dimension through the door in the basement. He wanders past three women in the sixth dimension who are just eating bananas next to each other and just happens to stumble upon Bustrod and the princess having sex over a table. Everybody has sex on tables in this movie. But they notice him and she, the princess sends Bustrod to chase him down and arrest him. He's another intruder. And uh, as he's trying to run away, he runs past those same three women eating bananas and slips on their banana peel <laughs> and uh, collapses to the ground. We cut right to him already being in a prison cell and uh, flashing Gramps go to visit him. And they're standing outside his window and he's suddenly doing a Greta Garbo impression. Go away. I want to be alone. Back in the first dimension, Susan Tyrell now playing Squeeze-It's mother is introducing Squeeze-It's father, a drunk sailor played by Joe Spinell in his third of eight roles this year for us, to his 11-year-old son chicken boy that's what she just calls him chicken boy i don't like she also apparently named him squeeze it but uh, she also is wearing like a, a a weird like giant witchy pointy nose that i'm wondering i'm like is this supposed to be beak like or, yeah. or something I'm i don't know not what's sure going on here. <laughs> but uh but yeah she's like you want to see your son chicken boy wake up chicken boy oh chicken boy <laughs> You want to see him? You want to see Chicken Boy? Yeah. Oh, Chicken Boy! <laughs> That's really rich! <laughs> and uh, Squeeze-It sleeps on this, like, raised platform made out of wood in the middle of the room. But there's also three chickens that are sleeping with him there. Um, the sailor's like, oh, I'm I not I believe they're dad. called uh, roosts. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's a chicken roost. <laughs> that sounds like a thing. Um, the sailor is basically assaulting his mom right in front of him. And she asks for help, but then when he tries to help, both of them start to beat him up for helping. He decides he's going to write a story about it and uh, cries that he's not helping Frenchie. But suddenly the chickens are speaking with him telepathically (laughs) to try and comfort him and console him in his hour of need. You know the chickens are always ready to help you any way we can, but as you know... What can chickens do? Precisely. Wish I could be brave like Flash. Creeping through the jail, Flash is pulled into a random cell by just an arm. We don't really see much of what happens other than that. Um, And Gramps breaks into the next cell down to steal a pie from Bim Bam Boom, who he just beats unconscious, maybe to death, and steals a pie from the prison cell. And then Flash wanders in with all of his clothes torn, presumably having been raped by the person in the previous cell. He calls Squeeze-It from the jail. So he's able to make a phone call to the first dimension from the sixth dimension. And he says, you got to come in and help Frenchie. And Squeeze-It is sitting in the corner with his with his typewriter in front of him. And he's like, I've got nothing else to live for. I'll help. I'll help. He goes through the sixth dimension door. Uh, Squeeze-It is immediately arrested and brought to Satan as played by Danny Elfman and the Knights of the Oingo Boingo playing like a team of hooded creatures with instruments behind this the devil. He says that he's here to save Frenchie and uh, the devil basically in song makes a deal. This, this is kind of the proto Oogie Boogie scene where he has like Sally and Santa trapped under yeah. uh, Lock, Stock and Barrel's place. Feels very much like that. And uh and he says, well, if you bring me the princess, then I'll make sure that your friends get out of here safe. And so he just runs outside and grabs the princess who's like passing by and brings her in. And he's like, great, your friends are going to get out of here fine. And then cuts his head off. Uh, but he's still alive. Mm-hmm. His head is just alive sitting on a shelf. Um, is, do we, is this the point at which he sings uh, Squeeze It the Moocher? <laughs> That's the, that's the whole number that's going on. The the, yeah. the 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 bargain to get the princess and all that is all part of this song. Squeeze yeah. the moocher. So he did. So it's basically a parody of the mini the moocher. Mini the moocher. Well, son, let me tell you, I'm so pleased to meet you. The boys and I've been expecting to greet you as guest of honor in the house of the dead. Just relax, lay yourself down, say goodbye to your head. Hi. 
Howdy, howdy, howdy. It's just, it's just great. I just love Danny Elfman singing this song. And it's crazy how fully formed their music was from the get-go. Like this is like the beginning of of the the public knowledge of Oingo Boingo. And yeah, not not really. They've been they've been a group since seventy two. Right, but it wasn't it was they were performing locally. This is yeah. this is a nationwide presentation of their music for the first time. Uh, this is Danny Danny Elfman's yeah. first film that he's performing music in, mm-hmm. and his voice is so perfect, and the songs are really great. They're really well written, and it's just really funny. Um, and he's drawing from all these these diverse musical inspirations that just make it really. Um, interesting and fun like other movies that had these budgets didn't have this amazing music behind them and so it's well, <laughs> Richard Elfman is extremely lucky that his brother is Danny Elfman yeah I mean I think that he's an incredibly talented composer and has a lot of great musical influences but I think it's a, I mean, it's a little strange that all of this music was kind of just stolen for the movie yeah well not all of it about half of it yeah but uh then we move to, speaking of music being stolen, we, we move to uh, the Queen getting a massage from our director, Richard Elfman, as a masseuse singing the Yiddish Charleston. Which I thought was Danny Elfman playing another character. <laughs> because they look so much alike. Because uh, 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 they both have that, that big smile. Yeah, that big and, goofy and I, grin. And I was like, oh, Danny Elfman's playing another character right away. Yeah. And I was looking him up, I was like, oh, that's not, that's not him, that's somebody else. <laughs> yeah. That's his brother. The Yiddish Charleston is written by Billy Rose and Fred Fisher, but is actually being performed here by Richard Elfman. So it's not a lip sync situation. Well, but it was because they originally, so they originally used the song, the Yiddish Charleston. They originally did a lip sync, just like a bunch of the, like Pico and Sepulveda and the Josephine Baker one and all these other ones that they lip sync straight up. They did that with this one too. And then in post, because they absolutely couldn't get the rights. Like some of the other ones, I think they went back and got the rights for. Okay. This one they couldn't get. And so they went back, recorded their own version while they played it back and tried to match with the footage that they had already filmed. Wow. Interesting. Well, I think it works. Um, but the Queen doesn't have uh, any patience for this song. And she pulls out basically like a ray gun and zaps him. And as he disappears into a skeleton... We also see the disappearing skeleton of a fish that he swallowed whole, disappearing in his stomach. The king pulls Frenchie aside and says, I'm going to let you guys go. I don't know if he got, like, orders from the devil to do this, but he says... Well, it's for her protection. It's for her protection, and he's genuinely in love with her. It seems like she actually loves him, too, here. Um, but he says, you're free to go. They kiss, and she leaves. Her and Renee both leave. Bustrod tells the queen what the king has done renee collapses uh from pseudo menstrual cramps according to an intertitle and renee and frenchy are very quickly reapprehended by the guards because the queen doesn't want them to go squeeze its head <laughs> suddenly having sprouted wings flies to uh sit next to the king just perch next to him and says oh they've been recaptured he's like i just let them go and then he's like well the the queen has them now she starts threatening frenchie and to show frenchie what what her fate is going to be she takes one of her other prisoners and throws her into basically like a rape cage full of a bunch of male prisoners who proceed to rape this woman and then throw her over the wall into a mortal combat style fatality mm. spike pit it's a pit of spikes i, um, I was the, i would have gone prince of persia spike pit but yeah is that a thing in those games? I never played those games. You never played those games? Yeah, it's a thing. There's okay. a lot of, a lot of yeah. spike pits. Do you er- think Mortal Kombat was inspired by Prince of Persia with their spike pit or by this scene from Forbidden Zone? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, now that Frenchie sees what's going to happen to her, uh, Bustrod starts to approach her to take her down and throw her into the, the rape cell, and she kicks him backward. And he falls off a cliff and dies. <laughs> and then Susan Tyrell freaks out about it and she goes, My frog! You killed my frog! God damn it! You killed my frog! <laughs> <laughs> she's like, she shouldn't sound more upset, but she's like saying it in such a weird, jokey way that it cracks me up. And then the ex-queen walks in 
and the queen is shocked. She's like, oh my god, you, you're supposed to have been dead for years. What? How could you possibly be here? And she pulls a gun on, on the ex-queen. But the ex-queen throws a knife at her gun hand, and she immediately drops the gun and pulls the knife out and throws it at Renee. <laughs> and it like stabs Steps Renee through the, the, through the leg. And then they start just a massive fight on the same like top of a cliff that the frog just fell right. off and of. which we're we're overlaying like cat hissing yes. you know noises over over the entire fight um and then suddenly they're making out it turn it seems like oh these these people are actually friends and everything's going to be okay and then we find out that the queen is just just tricked to the ex-queen and then throws her over the cliff and she dies into the same spike pit right. that we just saw yeah so uh, she turns around and decides, all right, now it's time to kill Frenchie. But the king walks in and says, they have our daughter. The the, the devil has our daughter. And if you kill Frenchie, they're going to kill our daughter. So you'd be killing your daughter by killing Frenchie. And the queen breaks down and decides, oh my God, I, this isn't fair. I can't do it. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> Renee is able to escape her bindings and intentionally jumps into the rape cage because she just wants to be raped. <laughs> and... Uh, then out of nowhere, Ma shows up with the gun and shoots the queen. <laughs> and the queen is like, what? What? Who are you? What happened? Why is this happening now? Which I, I definitely want to put a screenshot of her reaction to being shot on the Instagram. <laughs> because the pose that she does is so perfect. She's just like, what? Why? <laughs> and uh, the king mourns the queen on the same cliff. And then squeeze its head just slowly floats down next to him. Doesn't say anything this time, but just sits there and and mourns with the king. And then we get the big finishing dance number in the dice slash throne room. Uh, Frenchie is the new queen. And uh, basically every character we've seen so far reappears with lines in this song. Some of them are still corpses. The, both the queen and the ex-queen both have lines but they don't open their eyes for that they're just dead on top of each other on the floor and then all the characters celebrate by exploding and we move back outside the house uh in venice at night for the credits and that's the story of forbidden zone (laughs) it's pretty wonderful right oh the face richard's making right now (laughs) uh i mean i will admit that i just don't get it i guess it's 100 percent in the performances for me i I was just like, I don't like this movie at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The director, Richard Elfman, is obviously the brother of Danny Elfman, famous composer. I didn't realize that he even had other movies. Um, But apparently he also directed a movie called Shrunken Heads. um, A movie called Streets of Rage, under a pseudonym. Which is Arrestade Sumatra? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's Aristride or Arrestadre. Sumatra. He's also in post on something called Aliens, Clowns, and Geeks, which might actually be a different name for Forbidden Zone 2 because... No, it's not. Okay. So that one is a movie... So what, what I had read was that he has been he's been trying to get Forbidden Zone 2 off the ground for quite a while. Right. And the company that said that they were going to finance, help finance uh, Forbidden Zone 2 basically said oh we we can't do this you need to you need to put up another movie like a really something really fast and cheap before we're gonna do Forbidden Zone 2. And so this so is something on the way This too. was this was done in concession so he could get the other movie off the ground which still hasn't come to fruition yeah. as of the end of 2019 and uh, they did he did have an Indiegogo for the sequel. Which met its goal. It was, met its goal. Um, it was the Indiegogo started back in 2014, uh, and it raised 120 thousand dollars. But um, not a he, frame has been shot yet. Not a, nothing's been shot, and but he's still making updates on it. I mean, that so he still he still updates the Indiegogo page and just says, "Hey, we're getting closer. Like we're almost there." You and ForbiddenZone2.com is still a thing. Yep, it's happening. Um, uh, Richard was also credited as. Aristide again um, where he played a bongo drummer in the George of the Jungle movie (laughs) Um, he also as we said before plays the masseuse that sings the Yiddish Charleston and he ran a movie news website called Buzzzine for a while which our friend Rachel worked at the writer Matthew Bright obviously plays the twins Squeeze It and Renee Henderson he also wrote Freeway 
Do you remember oh, Freeway? I really liked Freeway. He wrote that movie. That's you... the Little Red Riding Hood movie with uh, Reese Witherspoon and Kiefer yes, Sutherland. I remember that one. I really enjoyed that movie. Do you know what else he wrote and directed? Uh, I have a couple things here. I'm, I have a feeling which one you're going <laughs> to mention because it's a movie that you have you have a special place for in your heart that I think is hilarious. I, I don't think it's a special place in my heart, but Tiptoes is just a special <laughs> he, movie. <laughs> he wrote Tiptoes, um, which if you haven't seen it, is the one about... Yeah. It, it, Gary Oldman plays, plays a dwarf. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yep. and, and, Matthew, and McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey is his brother... Uh, and and he he is the only non dwarf person in the entire dwarf family. family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when his girlfriend Kate Beckinsale gets pregnant, he has to talk about this fact that she doesn't know about him right. that he comes from this family, and so there is the you know genetic possibility that she's she's carrying a, a dwarf. And uh, I think Peter Dinklage is in this one too, but he's not. He's not one of the people that's on their knees pretending to be a dwarf. Oh, for yeah. This movie. yeah. <laughs> it's just such a tasteless casting choice. I mean, I get it. Like Gary Oldman is a is a chameleon, but he's a chameleon. <laughs> he's the full size chameleon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, but Matthew Wright also wrote Bundy, which is this the story of Ted Bundy. Yeah. And uh, he was a former roommate of Vivia Chess's. Um, which was part of his connection to him for the right. movie. Which is probably why he knows him and Susan Tyrell. And, yeah, because and, they... And Matthew had... Bright was a member of Oingo Boingo. Right, exactly. Uh, the second credited writer, Martin Nicholson, is an editor who worked on a movie called Forbidden World in 1982, which has nothing to do with this. He also edited three episodes of Deadwood, uh, Game of Thrones, three episodes of Game of Thrones, and the Deadwood movie that HBO just put out. It was like a reunion film. The third writer, is that right? Am I keeping track of these numbers? Yes, right? third writer. The third writer, Nicholas James, plays the Pope in this movie. I don't remember a Pope. I don't remember a Pope either. But uh, he's credited as Pope. And his credits are mostly sound department credits. But uh, he worked on Total Recall, Independence Day, Starship Troopers. The cinematographer, Gregory Sander, um, this was his second to last movie. He had done Sisters for De Palma, Tulane Blacktop. And uh, the shooting for Monty Hellman. But I noticed his name because uh, his name is Gregory Sander, which is kind of a Game of Thrones reference in its own. Because Gregor E. Sander is how in Spanish you would refer to the Clegane brothers, Gregor and Sander. Huh. It's not an actual piece of trivia, just a funny thing. I yeah. <laughs> Gene Cunningham plays the pimp slash drug dealer Huckleberry P. Jones and Pa Hercules, the father of the Hercules family. He is also a mystic knight of the Oingo Boingo, and this is his only acting credit. Uh, Marie Pascal Elfman is obviously, at the time, was the wife of Richard Elfman. She is also a mystic knight of the Oingo Boingo. Hyman Diamond as Gramps Hercules. She also did the sets for this, didn't she? Right, yeah. She was the production designer. Yeah. Uh, Hyman Diamond was uh, Gramps Hercules, which was a fake name that they gave to Elfman's accountant because they weren't sure that he wanted to be credited in this movie. Brian Ruth is one of the Kipper kids, and Martin Van Hasselberg is the other Kipper kid. Uh, both of them are in UHF. They are part of the telethon to save U62. Martin Van Hasselberg is married to Bette Midler. <laughs> Yeah, she's That's married to one of the Kipper Kids. Bit of trivia. And there's also a Kipper Kids song called "Playmates" that was used in the Adams Family movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when Fester and Gomez are sliding into the secret vault after yeah. they pull the right book out of the bookshelf. Susan Tyrell was uh, Queen Doris of the Sixth Dimension, and Ruth Henderson, um, mother of the the twins, um, she played Oma in John Huston's Fat City, opposite Stacy Keach and Jeff Bridges. She was Ramona Ricketts in John Waters' Crybaby. She was Madame DeBarge in I Am Weasel, directed by Dave Feese. What? Really? Yeah, because he created that character. Oh, yeah, of course he did. So she did a voice on on um, a movie special that was about just the Weasel uh, character. okay. And uh, she also played Midge Montana in Big Top Peewee, which is uh, yeah. probably a Danny Elfman connection. Yeah. Uh, but I don't actually, that's the one I always forget the entire plot of big top Huey. yeah uh it's, it's just one of the circus performer ladies yeah, right? yeah. She, she must be a circus performer. yeah but it's just it's i mean all i remember is like them in like a field 
Yeah. With a bunch of animals and stuff. And, and he makes everyone young so that they want to go to the circus. Yeah. Like, he turns them all into kids. Okay. Yeah, I feel like that was a, a lesser Pee-wee movie, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Kedrick Wolf plays the human chandelier and Mrs. Feldman, the school teacher. Herman Bernstein was Elfman's actual grandfather. Viva, who played the ex-queen, was named by and worked extensively with Andy Warhol. Um, she is also the mother of Gabby Hoffman, who is a child actor and played Caroline Sackler on Girls and uh, is currently, or was until recently, Ali Pfefferman on Transparent. I think that show's over now. Joe Spinell was the drunken sailor. Danny Elfman was Satan, but you know him as the composer of all of Tim Burton's best stuff. Uh, a bunch of TV show themes, Simpsons, Batman the Animated Series. Mm-hmm. Um, Dilbert, technically. Yeah. <laughs> because Dilbert... The animated series literally just stole the Forbidden Zone theme, which it calls the Dilbert Zone in the credits of the of the TV show. Yeah. Uh, Danny Elfman also did the theme song to Sledgehammer. Do you know what Sledgehammer is? I do not. Do you remember the show where in the final episode they were defusing a bomb and Sledgehammer, the lead detective, said his catchphrase, like, I'll fix it or whatever. I don't know what his catchphrase was, but he's defusing this bomb and he does it wrong. And a nuke goes off in San Francisco, and the entire cast of the show died. And then they renewed the show for another season. So they were like, but we killed everyone on the season finale that you told us was a series finale. And so then the, the next season took place like two years earlier. Like they had to like back up the storyline. But yeah, so he did the, the song for that show. And he also did the song for the, the Beetlejuice series, which was based on his score for the Beetlejuice film. He's also the composer and singing voice of Jack Skellington in Nightmare Before Christmas. One of the featured dancers in that dance number at the end was Susan Bridges. I was like, I'm going to look that up because we know a member of the famous acting Bridges family. Mm-hmm. I was like, maybe I could talk to him if this is someone related to him. It is. <laughs> it's his Aunt Susan who is married to Jeff Bridges. <laughs> um, so no chance of a star. Probably, no, probably not. No, I, <laughs> I, I think I could probably bug him about it. I still work with him. He's in my building. And uh, Hervé Villachez is uh, King Fausto of the Sixth Dimension. He played Knickknack in Man with the Golden Gun. He was Tattoo on Fantasy Island with the famous De Plane, De Plane boss. He was also, he's credited as Little Breather in Airplane 2. Hmm. I don't remember the bit there. And he is played by Peter Dinklage in a recent film called My Dinner with Hervé. Which is weird because they look absolutely nothing alike. Yeah. I, I, and have two completely different conditions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they're just, they just wanted to capitalize on that sweet Dinklage money. Yeah. And uh, I think that's everything I have. Uh, what, did you want to go more into the Oingo Boingo stuff? Yeah, well, so I, I'm a huge... Oingo Boingo fan. Right. I, I, I try to go and see them. They they play every year at the, the Canyon Club, which isn't far from, from here. And yeah. uh, I mean, they, they obviously don't have uh, Danny Elfman fronting the band anymore, but the, the shows are still absolutely amazing. The, the, new, the new frontman is um, Brendan McCreary, who... Um, he's just amazing like he's if you if you if you wanted to pick somebody to to replace Danny Elfman they they couldn't have done a better job because this this guy not only has an amazing singing voice and 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 has the the mannerisms and intonations of of Danny Elfman down uh but he's um he's got the energy you know like like well he's like 20 years younger than well, of course of band. course he is he's yeah he's he's a young guy um and but that but that's what you want like, yeah you exactly. want that kind of energy in a show and so like the the shows are just absolutely amazing they, they go under the um the name uh oingo boingo dance party and or former members of oingo boingo and it's just it's it's wonderful it's a lot of the original members playing like the the horn section and the drums and they're they're still absolutely top notch um and and funny funny enough, uh, Brandon McCreary is also a film and television composer. Oh, so when he's not, you know, because like they they get together once a year around Halloween and do you know maybe a half dozen shows around Southern California. Is it all covers of Oingo Boingo songs, or do do they have any original songs that he's written? No, they just do they just do the the old catalog. Okay. Yeah, and so like for for a while, I know that they were doing like they would go and do like an album every year like like this year we're gonna do only a lad and you know next year we're gonna but now they just sort of do an eclectic mix of 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 some of the favorites that you know they're gonna do 
you know, Dead Man's Party or Just Another Day, uh, you know, some of the more famous ones um, yeah. from, from Oingo Boingo. Um, but... Uh, it's funny to think being someone like in the early 80s and be like, oh, like Devo and uh, Oingo Boingo, they're just like these silly like ska techno bands. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be a fad and they're going to be replaced with somebody else. And it's like, no, no, no. Those guys are going to be composing like every movie like for the next like <laughs> yeah, 30 <exactly>. years. Because <laughs> uh, Mark Mothersbaugh's basically doing the exact same thing Danny Elfman's yeah, doing. Yeah. And good for them. They're, they're amazing, you know, musical geniuses. And I'm, I'm glad that they're, they're using it, uh, you know, beyond their, their short-lived pop careers. Yeah. So uh, before they were a band, they were a musical theater group. Okay. So uh, Richard Elfman started them as uh, as a musical theater group in 1972 under the name the, the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, uh, and they didn't become a full on band uh, like just a band like not musical theater until 1979 when Richard left to pursue film, and Danny took over and just did the regular band thing. Yeah. But that wasn't Richard Elfman's first musical theater group. Okay. So before... He was also in the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> no, musical theater group, not band. So before this, he was in a musical theater group called the Coquettes. Oh, yeah. In San Francisco? In San Francisco. Correct. So this is a surrealist theater group uh, that was that was influenced by like silent film, 30s and 40s, like music and cabaret and all that sort of stuff. And I think that that was very much the model that they used for this because, you know, the Coquettes had, you know, thrift store costumes, experimental content, um, even Divine from the John Waters films was a, was a member of this theater group. At oh, point. really? Yeah. So he when he left San Francisco and came back to Los Angeles after he left the Coquettes, Coquettes? Coquettes, probably. I'm, I'm assuming it's, it, yeah, the I'm homosexual not sure take on the Rockettes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, then he started his own down here in Los Angeles when that was the Knights of the or the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Cool. Uh, so I think that a lot of those influences from that original music theater group, you know, came into the content they were doing for, you know, for this for this group, and then the film came out of that. So basically, they wanted to try to capture the performances that they were doing in this musical theater group in a film. So this is the Forbidden or Forbidden Zone came out of that. Yeah. Um, up or down, Jess? I think I know your answer. Here. Well, I give it an up. <laughs> Richard, obviously, thumbs up, and then I'm going to say thumbs up also. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a no. <laughs> that's a no. All right. Um, I feel comfortable letting Jess and Jess start this here. But you don't. You don't want Richard don't to think, go first. Richard's not think, putting it right up there. I don't think there. you guys are going to put it in the same place in your lists. Uh. So, I actually think this is second on my list right now. After Ninth it's Configuration? after Ninth Configuration and ahead of my brilliant career. Okay. Well, that's where you're wrong. Because <laughs> it's second on my list as well. Oh. <laughs> second row. I was, I was wondering. I'm like, is that going below or above Caligula it's, for it's, Richard? It was 17 <laughs> penises short of being below Caligula. <laughs> Basically, we didn't realize it, but Richard's list is going from most to least penises. There were no penises in this film. Which is why it's above Caligula. (laughs) Uh, For me, this is going on the top. This is taking the top spot for me. Because I could rewatch this movie right now and enjoy it as much as the first time I saw it. And every line delivery kills me. And it's nothing if not consistently entertaining the entire time. There's never any scene where I'm like, ugh, this part. The whole thing is just like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> and uh, and I love it. And it cracks me up. And the music's great. And there's all these geniuses that are working on it that just went on to such amazing things after this because there was so much raw talent that went into this movie. And you could look at the sets and you could be like, oh, it's all rinky-dink and dumb and nobody cared about what they're doing. But there's parts of this movie where you're like, so much work went into that one shot and it doesn't... I- there's no reason that you would put that much work into this if, know, if you didn't care about it's it. It's absolutely intentional. Like, all of this stuff is 100% intentional. I mean, it looks like, you know, something that was thrown together in your, you know, grandma's garage. But at the same time, it's just like, every time you see anything in this movie, it was it was thoughtfully made because they didn't just 
shoot it in a, you know the schoolroom isn't shot in a schoolroom the kitchen or dining room scene is not shot in a dining room like all it would have been so much easier to just so much shoot easier it just in to a use room. real locations but instead they hand fabricated like everything in this movie specifically for the these shots this aesthetic was very carefully chosen and even if you if you were going to do it like dogville style and just be like oh no it's just a chalk outline of a house in the background like on a stage like why go to the effort of instead of like a normal transition where you cut from one shot to the other, have the entire room separate into shards yeah. and slide <laughs> off screen and have the table in the middle of the room spin until it disappears. It's just oh, like the table animation. I love that. So they use like so they not only spun the table to make it like disappear off the you know, to transition out of the scene, but they obviously used like um, you know, stop motion like replacement animation where they must have had like three or four different size tables that they like you know, replace this with. I mean, it looked like a like a Sesame Street segment where they're like, you know, from the seventies where yeah. they're you know replacement animation. This table and you know, off the it's amazing. But I'm I'm done defending my placement. <laughs> it goes on top for me. Um, I think that's everything for this one. Have we I don't covered? know. I could probably keep talking about it forever. But sure. We'll we'll call it. We'll, <laughs> we'll call it an episode. <laughs> um, if you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we will be discussing Hide in Plain Sight, which IMDb calls... The true story of a man who discovers that his ex-wife has disappeared along with their children. Into the witness relocation program. I'm adding words because that's what it's about. We leave you now with a trailer for Hide in Plain Sight. My name is Hackman, Thomas Hackman Jr. On a Saturday in June 1967, I went to my ex-wife's house to pick up the kids. When I got there, the kids were gone. Taken by agents to the United States Justice Department. Why were they taken? Why are they watching me? Why won't anybody help? If it was your kids, how do you suppose you'd feel? James Kahn in Hide in Plain Sight. Rated PG.